My, my, this is, this is really surreal for me. Back in October, I, I wasn't sure how this thing was going to swing. Um, I uh, was impressed by my first impression of Christ Community, which was the search team, and they were an unbelievable group of people. And I probably shouldn't say things like this, but, you know, the before that initial conversation with the search team, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know how serious I am about this. I don't know. I don't know about this. And, and afterwards, I told, I told my wife, I think, I think this is something. I think this is something that, that we need to really pray about and consider. And I really shouldn't say this, but the Friday morning before we, before we boarded our plane, I'm in the bathroom and I'm going, what am, what am I doing? What am I doing? I, I, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I, 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 don't, I can't do this. Sunday evening, um, after being here, we were in our hotel room uh, over off the 20, and, uh, and, and I looked at Sarah, and I, think, I said, I, I think I want to do this. She said, I do too. So you, you want us over. You really want us over. And uh, this, is a, this is a special place. And you know, one of the things I, I, I've been thinking about you as a church is, is I think what you need to hear is that Christ loves his church, um, that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see in Revelation 1 that Christ walks among the lampstands of his church. And what, what that means, I think that's a, that's a profound way to say that he has intense care and concern for his church. He cares about Christ's community Bible church and he will always do what's best for this church. And so... I know you guys have, have been through it. I, I don't know all the history, but I know enough to know that, that you've had to persevere and, and that now might feel like a lean season for you and that you have endured some difficult and some challenging things. And, and yet what I see here, what I see in front of me is real potential. Not because any one of us are anything in particular or, or, or special or, or, or amazing or gifted. I mean, you, you are that, of course, but, but, but the Great Commission does not hinge upon us and our abilities, does it? And what I see here in front of me are faithful, sweet, passionate, hungry people who are eager to be used as instruments in the Great Commission. And so, bottom line, it is really an honor to be here and, and to be a pastor here, and I'm so thankful for you. So let me do this. Let me pray one more time, and, um, and then we'll go to uh, uh, a God-enthralled vision of a man whose example we desperately need to emulate. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Oh, King Jesus, we acknowledge you as the sovereign king and emperor over the entire universe. And even if we didn't acknowledge that crime, though that may be, Lord, it would not cease to be true because you are the king and you are the sovereign emperor, whether we or anyone else acknowledges it or not. And, O oh Christ, you never had a beginning. You always were and you always will be. You are the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. You rule and reign over all things. All the universe is in your jurisdiction, O Lord. You govern all things, O Lord, including our very lives. You have written a script of our lives before the world began, Lord. And all we are, all we are, are just mere instruments. We are just dust. And Lord, what we desperately ask 
What we ask with great urgency, O Lord, that you would use our lives and you would use this church as an instrument to put your worth and value on open display to the watching world. What we want, O Lord, is this congregation, small and insignificant though it may seem on the surface, Lord, we ask that this church, O Lord, would be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, that it would be a launch site for global ministry. O Lord, these people, this flock here, they need encouragement. They need strength. They need joy. They need surpassing pleasure in you, and I pray that you would give it to them. Give them hope. Help them to have eyes that look to you, that cling to you with white-knuckled tenacity. And Lord, as I preach and as I proclaim, I'm just a man, I'm just an instrument, and I pray that you would use the truth to empower and strengthen and challenge and convict and grow your people and produce authentic life change and transformation. So Christ, it's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen. Well, being the first week of January... It's only appropriate that we talk about resolutions. And I believe, I believe that I have discovered the secret of why most New Year's resolutions malfunction. You want to hear it? The reason why most New Year's resolutions malfunction is because the reward of achieving them isn't really worth the cost of keeping them. In other words, the pleasure at the end wasn't worth the pain of the process. The satisfaction when you're done really wasn't worth the sacrifice of doing it. it let's, because let's be honest, the, the joy of not eating donuts is less than the joy of eating donuts, which makes the resolution of not eating donuts destined to fail. Do you see? <laughs> you see, most, not all, but most... New Year's resolutions aren't actually kept because they're not weighty enough. They're not compelling enough. They're not high stakes enough. They're not satisfying enough. And so because of that, most New Year's resolutions that people make for their lives are just half-hearted good intentions destined to fail. Maybe I'll give exercise a shot. Maybe I'll take a stab at dieting. Maybe I'll stop procrastinating this year. Maybe, 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 maybe. And yet the problem is maybe is not a resolution. You see, a resolution accurately defined is a tenacious yes to something you want more than anything else in the world. A resolution accurately defined is something for which you are willing to pay a strenuous price no matter the cost you have to make to get it. A resolution accurately defined has a prize at the end that is so valuable that we will not be distracted or deterred from reaching our goal. That is a resolution. And you see, resolutions, at least the kinds of resolutions Christians should make, are necessary revealing, costly, and even dangerous. They're hard, they're painful, they're difficult, sometimes even excruciating, and it might just cost you everything to keep them. But oh, the pleasure they provide at the end is worth everything that you sacrificed to keep them. 
And this morning, that's exactly what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to make resolutions, not New Year's resolutions, but costly and dangerous and eternally significant resolutions, the ripple effects will, that will be felt into eternity, not even kidding. I'm asking you to make the kinds of resolutions that by God's grace you may keep and by doing so live radically transformed lives that put Jesus Christ on display for the treasure that he is. And to do that, I have enlisted the help of a man named Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century pastor, theologian who also made costly and dangerous resolutions for his life, the ripple effects of which we are still feeling even to this day some 261 years later. So this morning is going to be part biography, some history, much theology, but mostly, but mostly this is going to be an exposition of the resolutions that Jonathan Edwards wrote between 1822 and 1823 as a college student. And the reason, the reason why this is worth our time is because of how profound these resolutions really are. They're devotionally rich, they're theologically profound, they are insanely practical, and they are also the very kinds of resolutions that you should make for your lives also. Because you see, in 1722, Jonathan Edwards showed up to New York City to attend college. And yet he had been born in the Connecticut River Valley. He grew up in the Connecticut River Valley. He never even left the Connecticut River Valley until he showed up to New York City for college. And yet there he was all alone in New York City without mom or dad paying his bills or monitoring his phone or without a structure and schedule defined for him without expectations, without parental guidance and accountability, ready to start his own life as his own man on his own. And what does he do? He sat down. And as an 18 and 19-year-old, he wrote out 70 resolutions designed to chart a course for his entire life. These were like a spiritual compass for his soul. He knew that all of life was to be lived for the glory of God. And these 70 resolutions were how he was going to make that happen practically. And some of you in this room are also in your late teens and early 20s. Most of you are past that age. Some of you, like Edwards, are living away from home for the very first time. Most of you have been independent for years. Some of you are carving patterns of who you will be tomorrow, and most of you have already carved those patterns, and you are who you've become. Some of you are setting a trajectory for the rest of your life, decisions that you're making of, of who you, determining who you will be in 50 years' time, and most of you have already made those decisions, and 50 years later, here you are. And so, whether you're a senior in high school or a senior citizen, whether you are fresh out of the nest or you are an empty nester, whether you are just beginning the marathon of life or you are about to cross the finish line, my point is very simply this. It is neither too soon nor is it too late to live an urgent, radical life that counts for eternity.
That's exactly, that's exactly why Jonathan Edwards sat down and wrote out these resolutions because he understood, he understood that, that in this thing called life of which you only get one, that the stakes are unbelievably high. There is so much hanging in the balance even as we speak. And so, and so I want to enlist the help of Jonathan Edwards who had a God-enthralled vision for all things because I want you to have a God-enthralled vision for all things, which means, which means you're going to have to make some costly and dangerous resolutions to get there. So here's where we're going. Allison was gracious and last minute printed out sermon notes. I trust you have those, but here's where we're headed. This morning, I want you to make four costly and dangerous resolutions. I want you to make four costly and dangerous resolutions so that you will maximize both your pleasure and your impact, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's where we're headed. Four costly and dangerous resolutions that you need to make to maximize both your pleasure and your impact, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And yet, before we look at even one of those resolutions, I think we need to take a little bit, little bit of time and find out exactly who Jonathan Edwards is. So let's, let's go to the life first. So I want to begin with an abbreviated biography of Jonathan Edwards. Because although Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 and 1758, his life and sermons and theological influence continues to have a dramatic impact even centuries later. Which is really ironic, seeing as though he was nothing but a small town pastor in Connecticut for 23 years that had 600 people. That's 200 people less than the church I just came from. He eventually was kicked out of his church became a missionary to the First Nation Indians for seven years. He and his wife, Sarah, reared 11 children, all of which loved and, and treasured Christ. He was considered by some to be stiff and a bit awkward, a pleasant man to be sure, but hardly the life of the party. He worked and labored without sufficient electricity, or, or actually he had no electricity, no computers, no internet, no email. He, he didn't even have sufficient pens and paper. He didn't have any of those things. And yet, this man led one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in the history of America. He wrote theological works that are so hauntingly relevant, they would make your head spin. And outside of Christ and the apostles, he preached in 1741 what is perhaps the most famous sermon preached in the history of the world entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And don't let the title fool you. The sermon is incredible. Far from being grim and morbid, it is gripping and magnificent. You see, every Sunday in America, there are some 100,000 sermons preached. 100,000 sermons preached every Sunday in America, and yet in the last 400 years, only one sermon can truly be said to be actually famous, and it is the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God. So many times my wife has asked me, well, how's your sermon going? To which I have replied, well, it's not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but it'll have to do. 
And I'm not the only one who feels this way about Edwards. One writer called him the foremost pastor and theologian in the history of America. His biographer, George Marsden, said that he was, quote, the most brilliant man, the most brilliant of all American theologians. Encyclopedia Britannica, which to my understanding is a non-Christian encyclopedia, says that he, he was the greatest thinker America has ever produced on any subject. Even one of my own lit professors at my university, a godless man who mocked Christianity in the classroom, he said this about Edwards. He was so brilliant that if anyone engaged with him in a debate about the existence of God, they would lose. <laughs> See, that's who you're dealing with when you're talking about Jonathan Edwards. And yet, be that as it may, Jonathan Edwards was just a man. He was just like you, a sinner saved by sovereign grace, and at one point in time in his life, just like so many of you, he was also a college student with deadlines and burdens and struggles and anxieties. He, he knew what it was like to have more things to do than time in which to do them. He knew the pull of his own flesh and the wickedness of his own heart and the propensity to drift from God as the treasure of his soul. And so one day at college, he sat down and he, he began to write out these resolutions, these Bible-saturated resolutions designed to set a trajectory for the rest of his life, and he read them every single week, at the end of every month, at the end of every year, and he did so all of his life until his death. And today, we are here to enjoy them and be changed by them. They are costly, and they are dangerous, and yet if you keep them, they are deliciously satisfying. And so costly and dangerous resolution number one, resolve to live ultimately. You need to resolve to live ultimately. And by that I mean you need to resolve to live for what is ultimate. And what is ultimate is the glory of God itself. And in your hands, you should also have a copy of all 70 of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And so I want you to notice, look at that sheet now, and I want you to notice that before Edwards even gets into his resolutions, look at what he says in his introduction. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. Now, don't miss what he just said. He just said, I am sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. You know what that is? That's a confession. That's a confession that on his own, by himself, he was nothing more than a spiritual cripple and a beggar of grace, which is exactly what you and I are also. You see, what you have to understand about the Christian life is that it's not merely difficult. It is impossible. It is impossible 
As Christians, you have to understand, God has called us to labor for that which is His alone to give. The most basic goals of the Christian life are unquestionably beyond our reach, which means if we're going to do this Christian thing, we have to realize at the outset that it's going to take supernatural power to do it. What you have to understand is that the secret of the Christian life, the secret of the Christian life, is that you must despair in your worthless resources to live the Christian life and cast yourself upon Jesus Christ for his endless ones. And you see, Edwards understood that. He understood perfectly well what Christ said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's real. And that's just as true today as the day you were saved. But notice Edwards goes on. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. You see, beggars ask for money. Spiritual cripples ask for grace. And you remember what grace is, don't you? You had better remember, because if you miss grace, you miss everything. Grace is this. Grace is the all-transforming power of Jesus Christ to do the impossible. And what's impossible is the Christian life itself. In other words, grace is God's power to do what God commands. In fact, God doesn't command you to do anything that he has not already provided the grace through Christ to obey. And so the answer, the deepest answer to your current sin struggles is not merely that you try harder, although that's probably true too, No, the deepest answer to your sin struggles is that you plead with grace to do what God commands. Which brings us to the first resolution, and it is simply staggering. Look what he says. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good and profit and pleasure. Stop there. Notice that he begins with the operative word, resolved. Resolved. The question is, do you know what it means to be resolved? Do you know what a resolution is? What did Jonathan Edwards mean by it? Because the word resolution is not a biblical word per se, but Jonathan Edwards meant it in a biblical way. So what did he mean by a a resolution? Well, for Edwards, a resolution simply meant that you were going to live for something bigger than yourself. It's a conviction about what must happen in your life, no matter what you have to sacrifice to get it. A resolution has a prize at the end, the worth and value of which is worth anything to get it. In other words, all it is is radically reorienting and prioritizing your life around what God says is ultimately and eternally significant. That is a resolution. And I want you to make some of those this morning. And so what I ask, what is the first resolution on the list for Jonathan Edwards? It shouldn't come as a surprise. It's the glory of God itself. 
Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. Now think about this. Out of all the resolutions that could have topped the charts for Edwards, living for the glory of God was ultimate and at the top of the list. And if you understand what the glory of God is, then you'll plainly see that this should be the first resolution at the top of everybody's list. And so the question is, do you know what the glory of God is? is. Do you know what it means to live for the glory of God? Are you sure you want to know? Because it is devastating in a good way. You see, in Scripture, that phrase, the glory of God, that's a a summary way to describe the infinite worth and value of God because of his innumerable perfections that make him who he is. In other words, like in a divine math equation, you you add up the full number of God's attributes and excellencies and perfections in this equation, and the sum total at the bottom of the equation is an infinite value. And so the best way to describe the infinite worth and value of God is to simply say the glory of God. It's a way of summarizing in one phrase, The fact that God is a matchless treasure of infinite value. What you have to understand is that the glory of God is the ultimate motive behind everything God does. God himself lives for the glory of God. You got to get this. I mean, you remember Isaiah 48, 11, don't you? For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. So what does that mean for your life? Well, to live for the glory of God, get this now, to live for the glory of God means to do whatever it takes by God's grace to reflect Present, portray, and display God for the infinitely valuable treasure that he is. That's what it means. And yet the question is, does that still feel nebulous to you? It might, and oftentimes it does for people, and so we need to put some meat on those bones. You see, here's what it means very practically. Anytime, anytime you choose to trust God, to depend on God, or to enjoy God rather than the pleasure of sin, you have made a choice to glorify God, whether it's in public or in private. You see, in in making that decision, you have demonstrated His supreme worth and value over the pleasure of over the pleasure provided by that sin, even if no one sees it except God. Do you see? You see, bottom line, anytime you choose to obey the word of God on any issue, you have made a statement in choosing to obey the Lord, the word of the Lord, rather than the pleasure of sin. You are declaring to everyone, or even if it's just God, you are declaring, you are making a statement that God is more precious and satisfying than anything in the universe. And that is what brings him glory. And I want you to notice something about what he said. Notice what Edward says in that first resolution. It's really intriguing. 
He says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory, here it is, and my own good profit and pleasure. Now hold on just a second. Why did he say that? Why did he so quickly inject that part about his own good and profit and pleasure? Why did he say that? I'll tell you why. Because God's glory and your pleasure are the exact same pursuit. You see, those are not mutually exclusive. In the Bible, there's no such thing as, well, you can live for God's glory or you can live for your joy, but you can't have both. No, no. Rather, the Bible says, and Edward says, the way to live for your highest pleasure is to live for the glory of God. The more God is glorified, the more you are satisfied. And the more you are satisfied in God, the more God is glorified in you. God's passion for his glory and his passion for my joy are not at odds. Why? Because God's passion for my joy is his passion for my joy in him. Do you see? So ask yourself, do you want joy and pleasure and satisfaction? Do you want those things? And I know you do. The answer is not to deny your longings for pleasure. No, the answer is to pursue your highest pleasure where the highest pleasure can possibly be found, namely in the God of the universe. So tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. If you're a Christian here this morning, the moments in your life when you were the happiest was when you were living for the glory of God. Am I wrong? I'm not, am I? See, you are never more happy than when you are most sold out for God. And so the question is, are you happy? Are you a happy Christian this morning? Because if not, it could be, it could be because you have drifted from the essence of what it means to be a Christian and you are no longer pursuing God as the highest treasure of your soul. But I feel that I should be honest with you. Um, it's going to cost you to live for the glory of God. And it's going to cost you big time. It's going to cost you more and more every year of your life to live for God's glory. I mean, the price tag may be small now, but, but mark my words, to be a man or to be a woman who lives like this, living to display the infinite worth and value of God, that's going to cost you, and that's going to cost you big time. The price tag of the glory of God is going to escalate every day of your life this, with this supernatural inflation. And it might cost you popularity. It might cost you possessions. It might cost you position. It might cost you promotions. But just remember the one thing they can never get their hands on is the pleasure in God you will experience in paradise forever. And that's costly and dangerous resolution number one. Resolve to live for what is ultimate. Costly and dangerous resolution number two. Resolve to live eternally. 
You need to resolve to live eternally. And you know, in the, in the story, the, the Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge was a nasty, greedy man who didn't give a rip about anybody. And as you know in the story, he was visited by three ghosts. There was the ghost of Christmas past who showed him why he was so miserable. There was the ghost of Christmas present who showed him how he made others miserable. And then there was the ghost of Christmas future who showed him what his life would eventually become. And what that ghost showed him was so compelling and so devastating that it transformed everything about his life in the present. And you see, that's precisely how the future affected Jonathan Edwards. The flames of hell and the fragrance of heaven produced in him a kind of urgency and productivity and, and intentionality that caused his life to have an impact for eternity. And that is exactly what has to happen in your lives also. And so turn and look at resolution number 55. Resolution number 55. He says, resolved, number 55, resolved, to endeavor to my utmost to act as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Now, now just, just hold on a second here. To, to live as though he had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. What does he mean? What does he mean? exactly to act as if you had already seen heaven and hell with your very own eyes, because that's what he's talking about. What is this, some kind of mind game? Some kind of Jedi mind trick where he works himself up into some sort of morbid emotional hysteria? No, not that. It's that he had meditated so deeply and so long on the realities of heaven and hell from Scripture that they profoundly shaped his perspectives in the present. In other words, he realized that what you do in life echoes into eternity. And therefore, the realities of heaven and hell produced in him a kind of urgency and intentionality in the present that caused him to seize every moment as if it were his last. And so the question for you is, do you feel the weight of the brevity of life and the reality of eternity? Have you seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell? Are you gripped by the truth that life is a vapor and that you are surrounded by people every day of your life that will either be eternally miserable or eternally happy and it all depends on what they do with Jesus Christ? Now, don't misunderstand. Don't, don't think that to live like this means that you can't watch Netflix or play Fruit Ninja on your phone or, or whatever, because there is a way to appropriately enjoy hobbies and entertainment for the glory of God. The question is, are your priorities and passions and perspectives and purpose in life profoundly shaped by the reality that there is a heaven and hell to win or lose? Resolution number 50. Look at resolution number 50. He says, resolved. 
resolved that I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but I think what he means is this. If I can help it, everything I say, do, think, and feel will be said, done, thought, and felt from the perspective of eternity. And again, I do not want you to think that living like this is going to make you some gloomy, miserable person disconnected from real life. In fact, it is the opposite of that because look back at resolution number 22. Resolution number 22, my favorite resolution on the entire list. Resolution 22, this is unbelievable stuff. He says, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world, that is heaven, as I possibly can with all of the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence of which I am capable or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. When I first read that as a single man years ago, just a fire went through my soul. Because what it meant was, I will fight as hard as I possibly can to experience as much pleasure as I possibly can, not only here in this life, but also in the one to come. And yet the question is, how would Edwards do that? How would he endeavor to obtain as much happiness in the other world as he possibly could? How would he do that? Well, not only through meditation on the sacred text of Scripture, which is the portal, the, the window, the means through which we experience our highest pleasure in life. But he also meant a truth that so few Christians are willing to accept, namely, that Christ will reward you for everything that you do out of obedience or allegiance to him. He's talking about reward here. He's talking about treasure in heaven here. You don't deserve it, but it's still a reward. It's called conditional grace. And the Bible is clear that being rewarded by Christ in the life to come is the exact motivation you should have for everything that you do. I mean, is this not what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 6, 8 when he says, any good thing you should do, this you shall receive back from the Lord. You see, reward is not sub-Christian. It is most authentically Christian. And is this not what C.S. Lewis put his finger on in his famous quote? Indeed. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so Christ community, are you far too easily pleased? 
Are you a half-hearted creature fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to you? Are you like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because you cannot imagine, you cannot imagine the offer of a holiday at the sea? Are you far too easily pleased? And when you get that, when you get that Christ will reward you and and that even Christ himself ultimately is that reward, then it cannot but help transform the way you live your lives in the present. And that's two. That's two costly and dangerous resolutions. You need to resolve to live ultimately. Number two, you need to resolve to live eternally and costly and dangerous resolution. Number three, you need to resolve to live urgently. You need to resolve to live urgently. Because the older I get, the more I realize that time is the most precious commodity that I have. And what you have to understand is that before time began, God predestined for you the exact amount of time that you would use for his kingdom and the Great Commission. And you don't get one second more or less than what he ordained. You see, it's a fixed income of time, as it were. And what you do for God and the Great Commission must be done within that time. And the clock is ticking even as we speak. You see, each moment of time is like a coin in your pocket. And once you spend it, it is gone forever. And you see, Edwards understood this. He understood that time could be spent either to maximize our lives or to waste our lives. For instance, look at resolution number five. Go back and look at resolution number five. Simple but profound. Resolved, he says. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. I mean, mean, do you feel the urgency there? Not only never to lose one moment of time, but to improve every moment of time. What does he mean by this? He means you just take the normal, everyday things that you do without thinking, and you do them in such a way that gives them eternal value and significance. For instance, how would you like an extra half hour, 45 minutes a week to get stuff done? that be helpful to you? It's not much, but it's something. How would you like an extra half hour to 45 minutes a week to get stuff done? Would that be helpful to you? Well, then at the risk of being invasive and inappropriate, let me suggest to you that when you sit down to use the toilet, don't just scroll with your phone on Facebook, but rather seize those moments that read a, book, read a book that stirs your soul or to work on an assignment for school or brainstorm ministry possibilities or pray for lost people. Or when you eat lunch, don't just eat lunch, but eat lunch with someone who needs Christ and pay for the meal. 
Don't just drive in your car and and listen to political talk radio and get all bitter and fearful, but drive in your car while trying to learn a language of a people group in this area while driving in your car. When you brush your teeth, don't just brush your teeth, but brush your teeth with a book in your hands or, or memorize scripture, anything. This is what Edwards is after. You just take what you do in the mundane moments of life and you make even those mundane moments count for eternity. It doesn't have to be incredible. It just has to be intentional. Look at resolution number six. Resolution number six. This is simple but staggering. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. He's talking about passion there. He's talking about urgency there. He's talking about a life gripped by the great realities. And what are the great realities? Well, the realities are this. Life is a vapor. Eternity is long. Heaven is ecstatic with joy. Hell is horrific with pain. These are the great realities. In other words, we've got one life, one short, brief vapor of a life before we step off the planet into eternity, and we have got to make it count. I mean, isn't this what Paul was getting at in Philippians 1.21 when he said, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is is gain. In other words, all of life is about Christ and the Great Commission. And death is even better because then I get Christ and he is more precious and valuable than anything this life has to offer. And John Piper gets this. He says, life is too short too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Now again, hear me very carefully. There is no problem, I repeat, no problem whatsoever in seeking enjoyment in things like golf or careers or movies or hobbies. There's no problem with that at all. The problem is when we seek those things instead of or in the place of Christ himself. Do you see? See, the question is not whether you will enjoy those things, but whether you will enjoy them in such a way so that when you are on your deathbed, you will be filled with regret at a life that has been wasted. Look at resolution number 17. Resolution number 17 Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. And there it is. And and how many people do you know, when they get to the end of their lives, they realize that so much of their life has been squandered? You know anyone like that? On their deathbed, their final moments on this planet before they drift off to eternity filled with regret because they squandered their life. That if they could do it back, if they could do it all over again, they would go back and they would do it totally different. They would go back and they would live for the things that really count for eternity. Well, Edwards was determined to do whatever it took to never have to say that about his own life because look at resolution number 52. Resolution number 52. He says, I frequently hear 
persons in old age say how they would live if they would live their lives over again. Here it is. Resolved that I will live as I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. So let me ask you this. Looking at the trajectory of your life and where it's headed, where do you see yourself in five years? Where are you going to be in 10 years? Spiritually, not just geographically, but spiritually. In the Great Commission, where are you going to be in 30 years, in 50 years? Where will you be? What are you going to say? What kind of words are going to come out of your mouth in your final moments in this planet? Which, which direction are you headed? What ripple effects is your life causing for eternity? And let's be really clear here. I am not trying to guilt you. I'm trying to entice you. Because you don't have to crash and burn. You don't have to shipwreck your life on the rocks of sin and destruction. You don't have to do that. By the sovereign power of Christ, you can live an urgent life without regret. You can have that. It is there for the taking. It's not too late. The question is, do you want that? Do you want a life like that? And if the answer is yes, and I assume that it is, then the question is, okay, then, well, what needs to go? What needs to go in your life to enable you to live an urgent life without regret that puts Jesus Christ on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is? Is it a prevailing sin issue that has you in its grip? There is hope for you. Is it a kind of relationship, the undercurrents of which pull you out to sea and make you drift from Christ, he has something better to give. Is that you are allured by the financial thrill of career opportunities or the emotional thrill of being accepted or found attractive? Is it that you are infatuated with your securities or your hobbies? Again, let's just say it, it's not like things like relationships or careers or hobbies or being found attractive are necessarily wicked in themselves. It's just that the pleasure that Christ offers puts all of those things to shame. And that's three, we're almost done. Three costly and dangerous resolutions. Resolve to live ultimately, resolve to live eternally, resolve to live urgently. Fourth, and finally, number four, resolve to live violently. You need to resolve right now to live violently. Because, you know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we so oftentimes fail at putting sin to death in our lives is not because we don't have good intentions, but it's because we're not violent enough. We're not savage enough. We're not Viking enough. We're not kamikaze enough. We're not brutal or vicious enough with our own hearts. Oftentimes, our failure to conquer sin in our lives is due to the fact that we never actually deal with the root of our sin, but only the symptoms. When the noxious weeds of sin spring up in our lives, we don't take the sharp, jagged tools and rip up the sin by the root with violence. We tend to take cute little garden shears and, and trim the leaves and call it good. 
And then before we know it, we wake up to find that the garden of our hearts are wild and overgrown with sin. And then we find ourselves doing things we never dreamed we'd do. Now, you might not be in that place yet. But mark my words, you will be. You will be if you do not take the kind of precautions with your own sin the way Jonathan Edwards did with his own sin. Because look at resolution number 24. Resolution number 24. He says, resolved. Whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, notice his language here, to trace it back till I come to the original cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. I mean, do you see what he did? This is incredible. Whenever he, quote, did any conspicuously evil action, in other words, he knew it was wrong, he did it anyway, he wasn't merely content to confess that sin, but rather to go on a search and kill mission into his own heart to find what originally caused that sin. Do you feel the difference? Think about it like this. So I'm told in the Vietnam War, the enemy soldiers had these secret underground tunnels and hideouts underneath the ground. It was hard to kill the enemy because you couldn't even find the enemy. And so the army got wise and they appointed these men called tunnel rats. And their job was to find these underground caves, wriggle their way through the tunnels and kill the enemies lurking beneath. And that is exactly what you are to do with a sin in your life. You are to be tunnel rats, looking for the enemy of sin. Because yes, to be sure, lust and porn and sex outside of marriage and, and homosexual activity, those are bad to be sure. But, that's, but, but the surface sins, the surface manifestation is not, it is not the thing that makes it truly horrifying. Have you traced those things down to the root cause lurking beneath? Yes, anger and bitterness are a big deal, to be sure. But have you gotten to the issue that's causing the anger and the bitterness? Or pride, or fear, or anxiety, or discontentment, or greed, or anything. We're so willing to confess the obvious in general and ambiguous terms, but our failure to see real victory is because we have not lifted the rock to see what's underneath causing the sin. And that's a world of difference, isn't it? But you probably want to know, don't you? We're getting close to the end here. You probably want to know, how do you do what Edwards is talking about? How do you find the root of your sin and then kill the root of your sin? And that's exactly what I'm going to tell you right now. After you blow it with sin, after you do something sinful slash stupid slash selfish, you ask yourself three questions. Here they are. Here's how you find the root of your sin. Three questions. After you sin, what did I do? What did I want? And what did I not believe? First, what did I do? In other words, after you sin, you just state what you did in the most brutal terms that you can possibly find. 
No replacement words. Don't soften it. Don't minimize it. Don't rationalize it. Don't justify it. Don't soften the edges. No, you just call a spade a spade. You call it as you see it. Don't use any replacement terms. Use biblical terms. What did I just do? Second, what did I want? What did I want? In other words, when I gave in to that sin, what was I really after? What, what was driving me? What, what, what was I hungering for more than anything? Don't just assume. Really, really get beneath the surface. What did I really want? And then question number three, what did I not believe? In other words, when I gave in to that sin, what did I not believe about Christ that made giving into that sin so easy? Because Christ is four things, at least four things. And every single sin that we commit can be traced back to not believing one or more of these things about Christ. For instance, number one, Christ is satisfying. Way more satisfying than sin. Number two, Christ is sufficient. He is enough for you and he himself is what you need for your highest happiness. Number three, Christ is supreme. He is a treasure of infinite worth that puts the pleasure found in sin to absolute shame. And number four, Christ is sovereign easily able to deliver you in real time from the temptations that afflict you. And so when you sin, when you give in to temptation, you ask yourself, did I not believe that Christ was satisfying? Did I not believe that he is sufficient? Did I not believe that he is supreme? Did I not believe that he is sovereign? And that's how you get to the root. Listen to resolution number 56. This is incredible. Resolution number 56, resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. You see, this is incredible to me because this reveals that Edwards understood a reality about life that so many of us tragically forget, namely, that life is War. Life is war. Because did not Paul tell Timothy twice, fight the good fight of faith? Did not Christ say in Matthew 5, 27 through 29, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. <laughs> but I say to you, everyone who, everyone who looks upon a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I mean, this is, this is Romans 8.13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, the members which are on the earth, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. This is 1 Peter 2, 11. Brothers, I urge you as aliens and strangers 
to abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Because they wage war against the soul. J.C. Ryle put it this way. A true Christian is one who not only has peace of conscience, but war within. A holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling, these are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. That's exactly right. So bottom line, God wants a holy people. And holiness is not merely being moral or keeping a few rules. No, it is a violent war waged against the sin in your own heart by the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. And you just need to know that holiness, that real authentic change and transformation, that the pleasure of a holy life, listen very carefully, if you are in Christ, is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality because of the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in our place. And there they are. The four resolutions that I'm asking you to keep, not just this year, but for the rest of your life. And to resolve to live ultimately. Resolve to live eternally, resolve to live urgently, and resolve to live violently. And yes, to be sure, resolutions like these are necessary and costly and dangerous. They might be excruciating, and they might even just cost you everything. Just know this. A radical life, recklessly abandoned to Jesus Christ, costly though it may be, Everything that you lose to live that way is worthless in comparison. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we get glimpses here and there of the brevity of life and the reality of eternity. And Lord, our hearts are easily doled. The screams of the damned are easily muffled. The praise of heaven is easily drowned out by the things of this world, Lord. And this world is not the enemy, although, although it, it is massive in its problems and catastrophic, O oh Lord, shot through with sin, O oh Lord. This is our mission field, Lord. And we are here and we are not with you physically right now because you have given us a mission. And, oh, Lord, I beg you, I beg you right here and now, oh, Lord, I beg you that you would ignite in the souls of the people of this church with a passion for that mission, that you would ignite within this blessed flock and congregation an undying zeal and passion to see that we have the most shareable message in the world, that we are a part of the most dangerous and loving cause in the universe called the Great Commission. This means everything. Grip us, O oh Lord. Help us to be a people who live urgent lives without regret, meaningfully engaging with lost people, pulling them with us. Use this church, imperfect though we may be, as an instrument 
for your global cause. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. This is, this is really a privilege to be here as a pastor here. Thanks for letting me be here. It's really, it's really a delight. Um, you know, I, I, like I said at the beginning, I'm going to say one thing and then we'll close with a benediction. I won't preach a second sermon, I, I promise. Uh, um, you know, it just, just one encouragement from me to you. Again, you guys have been through it, and this feels like the perhaps wandering in the wilderness years, the lean years as you have gone from building to building, location to location. And, and I just want to say first a, a huge thank you to the elders and the leadership. This has not been easy for them, and they love you dearly. They love you and care for you, and, and um, they're not perfect men, but, man, they are uh, desperately seeking the Lord's wisdom on your behalf for the glory of Christ. I'm thankful for them. Um, I'm thankful for you, too, in this congregation. You have stuck it out. You have weathered uh, some, some difficult and challenging seasons. And I just want you to know, I just want you to know that the elders are, are praying very, very much uh, that we could be, that this church could be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, not only to impact Arlington, but, but even, even the whole world. Wouldn't that be huge to have a global impact for the glory of Christ? That's what we're after. So I'm thankful to you. And I just want you to know that it's not about one man or even the elders. It's not about any one of us, but us being instruments in the Redeemer's hand for the Great Commission. So this is, these are very exciting times. So. Um, and, and, and how the elders want to operate is we want to, we have in this room, I'll just say this one thing, then we'll, then we'll close. I just want you to know we have insanely gifted people in this room. And I want each one of you to be mobilized in a meaningfully exciting way for the Great Commission. And so stay tuned is my point. Stay tuned for uh, future vision and, and direction for the future of Christ Community Church. All right, well, please stand for the benediction. If, if you are unable to stand, you, you can sit also. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King and Messiah, our bread of life and fountain of living waters, may He give you grace this week, sovereign, sin-killing grace, to go out and live a life that puts him on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week. <laughs>